0: You're listening to teaching from the Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Uh, some of my earliest memories were attending church with my family. When I was really young, uh, my parents went uh, to one of the communities just north of where I grew up and helped start a church. And so exposure to church and knowing what it means like to be in church as a child is something that I know just kind of internally. And you know, there's some rules that we teach children to help them like acclimate to being in church. Maybe you've heard some of these around here even, like don't run in church. I heard that all the time as a kid because I ran everywhere. Um, and you weren't supposed to run in church. That was like the big deal, right? Uh, The other rules that I kind of just was taught pretty early is that when you're going to pray, what is it you teach a child? Bow your head, close your eyes, right? And so just kind of, that was something that was just, I heard that all the time when I was a kid. Bow your head, close your eyes. Bow your head, close your eyes. And that was how I was taught as a child. When you prepare yourself to pray, or when someone else is praying, you're taught bow your head and close your eyes. I had a friend named Sean, and Sean's family didn't go to church. Um, And so when I was young, I I decided to invite Sean to church with me. But because I knew, just as a young child, I even knew that this this friend of mine, Sean, didn't know the rules of church. I knew this. And so when we get to church, I was really concerned about him knowing what to do. And I I think it came from a good place, right? But when I sat with him, I wanted to make sure he knew, like, hey, this is what we're doing right now, and this is what we're doing right now. So someone gets up to pray during the church service. And I, I just, I'm like, Sean. Bow your head, close your eyes. Because I wanted to make sure that my friend Sean knew the rules. But, you know, young me, it wasn't enough that I just told him ahead of time, right? So I, I did the thing that little kids do i got my eyes covered and I start peeking, right? And I look and Sean does not have his eyes closed and his head isn't bowed. So I'm like, Sean, Sean, close your eyes. Sean doesn't do it. He doesn't respond at all. Sean, close your eyes. And I, I just progressively get louder until finally someone tells me, hey, Richard, you're distracting everybody. Right? See, I had learned the rules about being in church. I, I knew how I was supposed to behave and what I was supposed to do. But somewhere along the way, I had missed the point. Right? Right? We don't tell kids to bow their head and close their eyes because the Bible has some verse, thou shalt close your eyes and boweth thy head when thou pray to me. Right? That's not a rule from the Bible. We teach kids this because we understand that children get distracted really easily. And I guess it's probably not just children, right? So one of the ways we help equip them to be focused is we're like, bow your head close your eyes and we teach them these rules but I had missed the point to me the point was that my friend Sean needed to know at that very moment to bow his head and close his eyes and I think sometimes we go through these rituals we have these practices or these rules or these ideas that we've constructed about what it means to be a Christian to be a follower of God to be active in a church and we go through all of these practices but sometimes occasionally we miss the point we, we just miss the reason why those things exist. We've been in this series where we're going through the life of Peter. And, and Peter is a really interesting character. He starts with his call from God. He's, he's by the sea. He's a fishing, which is his occupation. And, and Jesus calls him to be a fisher of people. And he leaves behind everything. And he's got this interesting story where Peter has this unique connection with God. If you were here last week during our family Sunday, Ronnie shared with us about this moment in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is asking the disciples to tell everybody who he, who's been people have been saying he is, and Peter pipes up when Jesus asks, "Who are you, who do you think I am?" He pipes up and goes, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. And so Peter seems to have all the right answers. He has all the right information. But it doesn't take very long in Peter's story for Peter to begin missing the point again. So this morning we're going to look at three stories from the life of Peter. Three stories in the life of Peter where I think that Peter just shows that he's missing the point. Story number one is in the same chapter we looked at last week, Matthew chapter 16. So basically after this declaration, this bold declaration by Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised. And you've got to imagine this was shocking information for his disciples because just because they understand that he's the Messiah doesn't mean they fully understand what he's going to do. So Peter, in Matthew 16, says this, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, talking to Jesus here, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. I want to just sink in for a second. Peter rebukes Jesus. See, what we find out from Peter really early on is that familiarity does not equal respect. Peter was really familiar with Jesus. So much so that just a few verses earlier, he correctly identifies who Jesus is when no one else seems to get it. But that doesn't mean that Peter actually respects Jesus. Jesus. There's an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, and there's a reason that saying exists. I remember when I was a teenager, I had a teacher I loved. He was, he was my favorite teacher in the world. He was my social studies, my civics teacher, my sophomore year, and in my junior year, I had him for AP U.S. History. Mr. Hawkins was his name. He was one of the football coaches. He was a great teacher. He ended up being a principal to school some years later. But I just admired everything about Mr. Hawkins. During my senior year, when I was grown and out of his class, I saw him in the locker room one day. I was taking a a PE class, a, a weight training class, and he just happened to walk into the office there in the locker room. And I said to Mr. Hawkins, Hey Mel, his first name. Hey Mel, how's it going? And he just gave me that look. I don't know if you've ever gotten this look from an authority figure. And it wasn't like the I'm angry look. It's the I'm disappointed look. And Mr. Hawkins turns to me and says, I'm glad to see my former students still respect me." And walks out. I was crushed. I was broken because here this person was that I actually did respect, but because I'd become so familiar with him, I forgot the dynamics we were in. So the next day I go to apologize to him, and I find out from him that the reason he was so hurt by that is because there was a ton of other students around that didn't know him well. And I had taken my familiarity with him and put him in a position where he could be disrespected, not just by me, but by so many other people. See, I was so comfortable with him that I was arrogant about our relationship. That I was, I was so proud about the fact that I knew his first name. I knew this man that I was flaunting it. And what we see here in, in Peter's boldness to rebuke Jesus is that Peter has a flaw of arrogance. In rejecting Jesus' interpretation of what it means to be Messiah, Peter is arrogantly saying, Jesus, I know better than you do. I know better than you. You think that you're on your way to Jerusalem to die, but that's not what's going to happen. I would never let that happen. I have a better plan. I'm going to handle this. So how does Jesus respond to Peter missing the point? Matthew 16, 23, he turned to Peter and he said this, this stings. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter arrogantly believed that he knew better than Jesus, that he had a better understanding than Jesus. And what Jesus has to tell him is, no, you don't know. Get behind me. See, there's a different way to approach our relationship with God. Unlike Peter, we can learn to have humility in the way we approach God. We can approach God with respect and dignity and humility, assuming that God knows best and we don't. Story number two follows up in the next chapter. Matthew chapter 17. And what we continue to see here with Peter and some of the other disciples is that they get behind the scenes access. So this is kind of like if you've ever been someplace like a concert or a restaurant and you know someone who's working there and they take you behind the scenes and you get to see the things that no one else gets to see. Well, Peter had that kind of access with Jesus. So Matthew chapter 17 is one of those situations. After six days, so shortly after the events that we just read about, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. One of the other gospels says it was brighter than any launder could ever do. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So here, these these three men who are kind of close followers of Jesus, they get behind-the-scenes look of what's going on with Jesus, and they see something that's almost even hard to describe. The word for transfigured here just is the idea that something changed about Jesus' appearance. They got to see a side of Jesus that no one else got to see. And Peter here steps in pretty quickly in verse 4, and he says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If uh, you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I do want to give Peter a little bit of credit. Just a little bit of credit. Because he starts off, he's like, Hey, Jesus, if you wish, right? He's learning a little bit. He doesn't want to be called Satan again. But what we find here is that Jesus is is going to tell Peter that having access to me doesn't equal understanding. So Peter's learning to be humble, but he still doesn't fully understand what's happening. So let me break this down just a little bit so you can kind of understand what's going on. Peter wants to make tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. I, I like to camp. Camping's fun. But camping is different than day hiking. When you day hike, you go in, you take your food, you enjoy the pretty view, you go home, right? Peter wants to set up camp because he wants to prolong this experience. And not only does he want to prolong the experience, but he wants to make something not just for Jesus, but for our honored guest here, Moses and Elijah. And I'm sure that Peter is coming from a good place when he does this. But what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to control the situation. He's trying to still manage things on his terms. I kind of imagine Peter walking in, seeing Moses and Elijah there with Jesus transfigured and going, Hey guys, I got this. Let's build some tents. And I can relate to Peter here. Because by nature, I'm a problem solver. If I see something broken, I want to walk in and try to fix it, even if no one there wants me to fix it. It's my default nature to walk in and be like, here's three options, here's how we're going to solve this. So Peter sees the situation, and he wants to control it, he wants to manipulate it. And here, the response, I think because he's not being quite as arrogant as he was before, the response is a little more gentle. And God steps in. And this is what happens. Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. He was still speaking, Well, behold, a, bl- a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes... They saw no one but Jesus only. See, Peter wants to control the situation. He wants to put Jesus on equal footing with Elijah and with Moses. And God steps in and goes, no, 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 no. There's something different about Jesus. You're around him a lot. You have a ton of access. But you still don't fully understand that he is unique. He is different. He is my beloved son. Listen to him, story number three. Matthew chapter 26 verses 30 through 32. This is closer towards the end of Jesus' ministry. They are having quality time among Jesus' closest followers. Verse 30 says this, When they had sung a hymn, they went up to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after that, I am raised up, and I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus here is once again delivering a difficult message to his followers. Something bad is about to happen to me, and because of that, you're all going to run. You're all going to be afraid. You're all going to be scattered. And this is where Peter steps in. Verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You get what he does there? He throws his other disciples under the bus. Those losers over there, they'll scatter. Not this guy. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter's like, I'm never going to run. He's like, nope, three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the other disciples were like, yeah, me too, me too. They all said the same. If you know the rest of the story, you know that talk doesn't equal commitment. In this moment, Peter talks a big game. But talk doesn't equal Commitment. Maybe those of you in the room who are married can relate to this. On my wedding day, I was nervous. Sarah had nerves the week before, but she was resolved on the morning of. I was completely chill all week, and the morning of, butterflies and anxiety and nervousness. And looking back, I think think it's really interesting that all the anxiety and all the jitters weren't about the marriage. They were about the wedding. I was worried about getting up in front of people and committing my life to another human. And I was worried about the nuances of the wedding and the the nuances of, of the details of what was gonna happen on that morning and in that moment. But the reality is getting up and saying I do is easy. Getting up in front of a crowd of your friends and family and saying yes, I will marry you, that's the easy part. The difficult part is walking in marriage day after day after day after day, year after year after year. The difficult part is going through loss of job, loss of parents, disciplining kids, disagreement about things, finances, and finding the will to get up and say, I do. See, Peter, in this moment, he has overconfidence. He's like, I'm, I've got this. And the reality is the talk in that moment is the easiest thing he's ever going to do. The follow-through is where the difficulty comes. The commitment is where the problems are. The day-to-day commitment to Jesus is what is so difficult. Jesus' response here is kind of interesting because Jesus basically tells Peter, I know what I'm talking about. You say you're not going to fall away, but you're not just going to fall away. Three times, you're going to deny me. And there is an alternative way to live here. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack what happens in the fallout of this moment, where Peter overconfidently says, I would never deny you, Jesus. And it's easy for us to look at Peter's story and go, I can't believe that knucklehead. He was around Jesus all the time, and he still didn't get it. He was around Jesus all the time, and he still didn't have the strength to follow through. But I want us to think for just a second here about how often we miss the point. Just like Peter in arrogance, sometimes we assume that the way we would do things is the way God would do things. In in overconfidence, we attempt to fix ourselves rather than letting God fix us. In arrogance and overconfidence, we attempt to fix other people and pretend to be their personal savior rather than simply loving them and offering grace. As Christians, I think one of our flaws is that we tend to focus on behaviors because it's easy to change the way we behave. But if we just focus on the behaviors, we're missing the point. Jesus spoke out against the religious elite of his day who were really good about the behaviors. They would go to their garden and they would chop up all their herbs and measure out 10% of it, but then they didn't love their neighbor. And this is what Jesus says to them, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, "'for you tithe of your mint and your dill and your cumin, "'but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, "'justice, mercy, and faithfulness. "'These you ought to have done without neglecting the others.'" See, the reality is we can become really familiar with Jesus. We can spend a lot of time with God. We can go to a lot of places where God is discussed and experienced and worshiped. We can go to church and be involved in a life group and go to a Bible study and be at service events. We can do a lot of good things. We can read the Bible, we can pray, we can give our time and money, we can volunteer. But the reality is, if we don't begin to let God change us, if we don't have humility, if we don't follow God's lead, if we don't learn from our mistakes, then we are missing God. The point, God didn't come to earth to create a bunch of good people. God came to change our ability to relate with God, to change who we are into the people that God had designed us to be from the very beginning. So this morning, my hope and my prayer is that we are not like Peter, who in these moments is missing the point, but instead we're able to be changed by the God who loves us.